Before I move into the sermon, uh, just a reminder, there are three ways to give. There is a plate at the back, e-transfer at donations at nelsoncovenant.com, or you can go online to nelsoncovenant.com slash giving for other ways to give. Um, the faithful, consistent giving of those who are committed to this church and its mission is critical for us moving into the end of our fiscal year in 2021 and planning and charting out a new course in 2022. So I'm just going to pray and um, dedicate this offering to God. God, it's a little bit different now that we don't pass a plate and we don't kind of take up an offering and a huge percentage of our church gives throughout the week and in digital formats and it can kind of feel disconnected from our worship. But we give you thanks for the ways that you are providing for the ministry and mission of this church to go forward so that your kingdom is built, not our little empire. We pray that whatever funds came in last week or coming in today or coming in next week, you will protect them from misuse, that they would be used in a strategic way to strengthen people in their faith, to introduce people to the love and grace of Jesus, to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, that you would use this offering for your namesake and for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are starting a new series, uh, kind of in earnest today. Last week was the intro. We are moving into 1 Samuel chapter 1 today. And just a prompt, just a little nudge, just a little like throwing it out there, a little challenge. I really encourage you to do one of the following as we track week over week, whether you're joining us online or in person. Grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are sermon notes on the way in that will have the passage with pauses so you can take notes in between. Have a little piece of note paper where you're just jotting down, you're ready to engage with the message. Even if it's simply writing down one key idea, that will really, really help your engagement with the message. The more ways that we can actively engage, the more kind of uh, the deeper into the soil of our hearts God's word can go. And so I'm, I'm not making this prescriptive, but I am saying note taking, having your own Bible, getting to the passage, making notes in your own Bible, or using the sermon notes is a really, really good way to amp up your engagement with the text. And I also have questions in my sermon notes that you can use in your small groups and getting together with coffee, with uh, a, a trusted friend that you can take two or three of those questions and they can be discussion prompts because sometimes it's hard after a Sunday when you're connecting with people being like, hey, what'd you think of the message? Like, oh, this is good. Yeah, what'd you think? Oh, it's good. It's good. good too, yeah. Okay, let's have cinnamon buns. And so these questions maybe might just be a little the prompt that you need to facilitate conversation as individuals, couples, families, small groups. Okay, let's get into it. 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man from Ramathium, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerome, the son of Elihu, who was son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. He had two wives, one called Hannah and the other Penina, and Penina had children but Hannah had none. Now in these first two verses, the stage is set for something really, really dramatic. We're introduced to Elkanah, who has two wives. Penina has children. Hannah has none. 
That's a devastating end note to that sentence because in a culture at that time, women were primarily valued for their ability to bear children. God's command to Adam and Eve in the garden was to be fruitful and multiply. And so there was a shame attached to a woman who couldn't multiply and prosper God's people and by implication, God's promises. So there was this really deep source of shame and grief and desperation that arose from the helplessness of wanting children but not being able to become pregnant. And there is something uniquely painful about wanting a child and not being able to have one. And unless we've walked that path ourselves or know someone close to us who has, it's actually quite difficult to enter into the full level of heartache that we're introduced to at the start of this story. So this story begins with a barren woman. But it's actually more than that because when you understand where in the story of the Bible this book of 1 Samuel takes place, Hannah's barrenness holds an even deeper significance. So if you think about the the books that have preceded, in Genesis, we're introduced to the themes of creation, fall, redemption, and how God is going to redeem and take back a broken world um, from humanity's rebellion. And he's going to use a family. He's going to use the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that lineage. Then in Exodus, that lineage has prospered. They're now the Israelites. They're in Egypt. They're enslaved. And God says, I have a plan to make you into a great nation. He sends a deliverer and he rescues them. He brings them out into the wilderness, puts them at the bottom of Mount Sinai, gives them 10 laws and then many more and says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to represent me to the nations. That's how redemption is going to work. In Leviticus, he gives instructions to those people of at the base of Mount Sinai of what it's going to mean to walk with God. Because they're looking around at the other nations and saying like, oh, like is... Is our relationship to you, God, the way that these other people operate and worship their gods? And God's like, absolutely not. It's very, very different. You're going to be a light that invades their darkness. So Leviticus is about, I mean, to us, in in a lot of ways, a lot of like ridiculous detail about how to do this and these sacrifices at these times. And we're like, ah, but it was God's way of training them and bending the Israelites back into proper shape after being enslaved in Egypt and seeing pagan worship for 400 years, they had some really warped ideas of what, who God was, what it meant to worship God, what it meant to walk with God. So Leviticus is God bending them back into shape. And then the, in the book of Numbers, the Israelites begin their journey to the promised land. They're stubborn, they rebel, they sort of balk at Moses' leadership and God's leadership. Even when God says, I've given you this land, they're kind of like, ooh, there's giants in the land. Like, we should probably go back. And God says, no, that generation, you're cut off from seeing the land. We're going to wander in 40 years, wait for you guys to die, then we'll reset and start again with the next one. Deuteronomy is when that next generation is on the cusp of moving into the promised land, but they've grown up in the desert. They, They didn't hear the thunderous commands at Sinai. They didn't see the deliverance of the Red Sea. They were just like, oh, we're God's people? well, we're so blessed. Why are we just circling around in the desert? And God says, through a series of messages in the book of Deuteronomy, he reviews his law with them and he reminds them who he is, who they are, and how they're called to live. And it's a big reset. And then in Joshua, they move into the land, they conquer the inhabitants, they occupy the territory that God says, this is yours. And then comes the book of Judges. 
And the book of Judges is a very dark book. It's not for the faint of heart to read. It's an account where, in contrast to much of Joshua, where under Joshua's leadership, Israel is faithful and they're moving forward and they're taking the hill for God. They're like, yeah, we we believe God, we trust God. Judges shows this slow decline where they get established in the land and then instead of allowing their influence to go out and be a light to the cultures around them, they sort of begin adopting the worldview and the practices of the culture around them. They fall into sin, then they get oppressed by other tribes and nations. God delivers them through a deliverer, a judge. It's kind of like a military commander. It wasn't like a courtroom judge. A judge is sort of like an all-in-one um, judge, jury, and executioner, and military commander. And then they're like, oh, thank you, God. This is so great. We're going to live for you now. And then it's not long before they're like, eh, let's just copy what we see going on around us. And that cycle continues over and over and over and over again. And this happens for 400 years. So they were under slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and then in Judges, they sort of enslaved themselves for 400 years because slavery is still in their bones. They don't know how to walk with God. They're like, we're kind of used to the cycle of, love you, God, whoops, now we're enslaved. Cry out to God. Oh, God delivers us. Awesome. We won't make that same mistake again. Oh, we made that same mistake again. And it goes on and on and on and on. We probably can't relate to that today, but that's how their relationship with God went, right? Big promises, fall, call out to God, God delivers them. And it's in this context that the book of Judges makes note of something. Happens a few times throughout the book. It says, this was when there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Or some translations will say, everybody did what seemed right to them in their own eyes. So the time of Judges was a time of uh, catastrophic moral confusion and corruption. There wasn't unity under a king. There wasn't unified leadership. And Israel was stuck in a behavior pattern that was impeding and threatening God's promise to bless the world through them and provide a savior, a lineage through which to redeem fallen humanity. 1 Samuel opens up during the time of Judges. Samuel is the last judge. Of all the judges that have come, Samuel is the last one. So we're reading about the birth of the last judge. That's where we are. It's a dark time. Now let's come back to the theme of Hannah's barrenness because that's where 1 Samuel opens. What is that a symbol for? Who, who else is barren in the story? Israel. So Hannah becomes a microcosm of the state of God's people. Should be bringing forth life, but they're not. And the the mirror relationship to Hannah, which is Penina, who we're going to find out in a moment, is pretty wicked. She's flourishing. But Hannah, the righteous person, isn't flourishing. Hannah's stuck. And so if you've ever been in a situation in your life, you're like, God, I love you, I trust you, I'm serving you, I'm doing the best I can. Why am I stuck? And why are the people around me who don't seem to give a rip about you, how come they're flourishing? How come they're prospering? That's, that's the note that 1 Samuel begins on. It's not just a story about a barren woman, but a barren people. But Hannah's plight isn't simply that she's barren. It's actually worse than that. 
Look at verse 3. Year after year, this man, referencing Elkanah, went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. This is about 21 miles away from where Elkanah lives. Shiloh is where the tabernacle that was given to be the holding, kind of like the holding presence of God in the book of Leviticus. It was moved there right now. It's going to be there for a few years. So this is where they go once a year, all of Israel to worship. They didn't have little churches or little synagogues yet. It was one place that you go to once a year to offer a sacrifice. And it says they're going up to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. And that's where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. We'll learn about those guys more later on. But spoiler alert, that's another note of this was not, this was not good. Those names are infamous. They're not like, oh, Hophni and Phinehas, that's awesome. It's like, no, that's not good. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. And whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and wouldn't even eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? I want to pause here for a moment. Um, and I want to sit with this part of the story And I want to sit, as uncomfortable as it is, with the vicious mockery and mistreatment of Hannah from Penina. Notice the text makes a few things really, really clear. It was cruel and it was intentional. It happened every year, year over year over year. Penina did it in order to irritate Hannah. And that word irritate in Hebrew literally means thunder, right? So we can speak words that instill calm and peace and care and reassurance in people, this is the exact opposite. Intentional jabs, intentional words, intentional inferences designed to stir up, designed to move from a place of maybe peace to absolute internal um, tumultuousness and chaos. When did it happen most acutely? You notice in the text when it happened? on the way to sacrifice. We would say on the way to church. The family drive on the way to church. Going to worship. We're hoping it's a place of safety. We're assuming it's a place of support. And the person in the car with you is dropping daggers, right? Just knifing you. Wow, Hannah, I mean... Your name means favored one. And that's literally what your name means. That's kind of ironic, though, because I'm the one with all the kids. How does it feel to be favored of God, but yet have such an empty life? That must be tough. Hey, uh, Hannah, when we get to church, could you help me wrangle all of my little blessings? Because I know you have hands that are free. That'd be great if you could help me out. So I'm just overwhelmed with God's blessing. So maybe you could do me a solid. Oh, You know, Hannah, sometimes I I sit back and I think about it, and I'm so thankful that God has allowed one of us to provide heirs for Elkanah. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Penina took every opportunity to twist the knife and dial Hannah's misery up to an 11 out of 10. 
I want to take a moment and I want to speak to those of you who have been deeply wounded by other Christians in your lives. It was probably in a space that you hope would provide comfort and care and support, maybe a small group or a youth group or a Sunday morning, a close friendship. But when your guard was down, instead of receiving care and support and understanding, you got that knife in the back. You were punched in the gut. You were kicked while you were down. Maybe it was just a condemning cold shoulder. And there are very few wounds that cut deeper than those delivered by someone who professes to love God and yet can act so cruelly and viciously. Someone who can send a text to someone designed to thunder them up 10 minutes before church and then show up to church and raise their hand and be like, oh, praise God. Sing songs loud and proud. People who live like this really are the ultimate betrayal of the command to not take the Lord, name of the Lord your God in vain. It means to not carry it. Don't, in a sense, wear the I love God t-shirt if you're not going to carry the responsibility of love and care that comes with that, communicating that. Don't represent God in vain. And I hope as a church, I hope as... I hope as a church we recognize the importance of walking with each other in grace and care and doubly so when someone is fragile because of suffering or hardship or stuckness or loss or grief. And I understand that we're not always going to get it right. I haven't always gotten it right. But it's incredibly important that when we blow it, we own up to it, we apologize, and we do everything we can to make amends and repair. And if you've been on the receiving end of that kind of hurt and that kind of betrayal, and wounding, I want you to notice something about Hannah. The text doesn't really give us insight into this, but one thing is made pretty clear. Hannah never allows the cruelty and the immaturity and the hypocrisy of Penina to drive her away from God. She actually runs towards God. She doubles down on God even when, in a sense, her religious sister is a source of deep anguish and misery. So it's important for us to allow our pain to drive us towards God, not away from him. That might mean you need to find a new church, you need to find a new group, a new network of trusted Christian friends, you might need to find a new pastor. But through that transition, you still need to be moving towards Jesus and towards God. Don't let the failings of a Christian or a church become the roadblock to Jesus himself. I know that's a very, very challenging thing to do. But to sit with Hannah's example here is important. She allowed her pain to drive her towards God. Yeah, don't, don't, don't let a sibling, don't let an abusive sibling in the family of God keep you from connection to the Father. Verse 9, once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In his deep anguish, Hannah prayed to him, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, 
and not forget your servant, but give her a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. And she kept praying to the Lord, and Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice wasn't heard. And Eli thought she was drunk, and he said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah said. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli answered, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And she said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. And Samuel literally means God is heard or heard of God. When her husband Elkanah went up with all of his family, to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Alcana told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. He's not a, he's not a feature of this chapter. I mean, kind of, he kind of hidden in plain sight. Alcana is awesome in, 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 in this chapter. And Christian men and Christian husbands would do very well to reflect on his example. First of all, right here, when he says to her, do what seems right to you, like, I, I agree, like, this is your plan, yep. He's giving complete agency over to Hannah to determine the fate of their firstborn son, that's a biggie in that culture. He could have said, no, I make the plans for the son. That's my job. That's what I do. So thanks for your idea. I'll consider it. And then I'll inform you what we're doing. But he does, he's very comfortable with his wife's agency. He understands, I think, on some level. He's seen the years and years of grief and, and, and pain and sowing of those tears. And he realizes this is a miracle. And on some level, he has the faith to see, in a sense, this is, this is Hannah's call to make here. She's invested in Samuel in a way that I'm not. I still love my boy. This is her call to make. We read in verse 5 early on that he gave her a double portion because he loved her. And when she's despairing about her childlessness, Alcana never brings it up. It's not like, yeah, you should feel sorry. Like, why, when, when are you giving me a child? You're such a worthless wife. I'm going to divorce you. What's the point of you being in this family if you can't um, multiply my heirs and my lineage? There's nothing of that. In fact, as one commentator said, going against the grain of all cultural assumptions of that patriarchal society, Elkanah valued Hannah simply for who she was, her intrinsic personhood, and not for what she could produce. Against the stream of the age, which often viewed women as merely an instrument, Elkanah, through his actions, 
cried out to Hannah, with or without sons, you are precious to me for who you are. Again, there's a lot there for Christian men and Christian husbands to reflect on and meditate on. Continuing in the text, so the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she, was, until she had weaned him. After uh, he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. Remember, this is years, years later. I prayed for this child, and the Lord granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will, begin, he will be given over to the Lord. And he, Samuel, worshipped the Lord there. I want to speak about that kind of faith that um, is desperate for something. And then when God gives it to you, you're still willing to give it back to God. We'll talk about that next week. But for this week, I want one theme from this first chapter to not go unnamed and not foregrounded. And that is that God rescues from barrenness. That God rescues from the emptiness and the shame and the disappointment and the frustration, the isolation, the helplessness, the hopelessness that barrenness causes. And for some people, that is a physical barrenness, a barrenness of the womb. But barrenness manifests in all kinds of ways. There's relational barrenness. Right? There's emotional barrenness. There's spiritual barrenness. And in this first chapter, we're introduced to a God who sees those walking in the valley of barrenness. Those who are brokenhearted and weighed down, God draws close. But God, and God will, and God does, replace the barrenness with flourishing, with life in Hannah's case. And he does that for us too, whether our barrenness is physical, relational, emotional, spiritual. But this often happens through an extended dialogue of pain and prayer, grief and lament. For years and years and years, Hannah cries and prays. It's not a, it's not a story of quick deliverance of instant results. God is going to do something powerful in Hannah's life, through her life, but it happens after an extended season of anguish and prayer. Prayer and pain do a work in us that activity and comfort can't do. Almost all of us don't want that to be true, but if we look at our own spiritual journeys, we'd realize, yeah, that is true. We don't like it, but prayer and pain do a work in us that activity and comfort can't. And that's why it's so dangerous when we move into places of wounding and darkness and prayer and or, um, um, desperation, loneliness, barrenness, that we avoid it, we numb it out, um, we deny it, we minimize it. It's so dangerous to do those things. We have to let, in an appropriate way, the pain and the prayer do its work in us because that is part of God's transformative preparation. And so it's important not to avoid 
times of grief and lament. And it's important, like Hannah, to pour out your heart to the Lord. To acknowledge the barrenness in your life. To not always be putting on a brave face before other people, a brave face before God, telling God what you think he wants to hear, being honest. Tears and wailing, even if it's in the quietness and privacy of our own home. We have to acknowledge our need for God. And we have to continue to pray. We have to persist year after year. And maybe it's going to include things like talking to a counselor or a trusted spiritual advisor. Or you're working through a book on grief with a trusted friend and and discussing its themes. And you're praying and you're praying and you're praying in different contexts. But through that prayer, you're allowing the pain to drive you towards God. And then you trust for his deliverance to come at the right time. Rick, I think in a moment I'm going to have you play the next song. But I want to intro it here because I think it's a good, I think it dovetails well with this. This, this next song is a song that is going to be sung over you. It's not to stand up and sing together. It's very worshipful. You can enter into it where you, as you're sitting. It's not particularly complex, but um, it's easy to pick up. But it speaks to waiting for God and worshiping God in the barrenness and trusting God in the barrenness to bring life. So let this song minister to you and then I'll come up for a closing thought.
Hannah's need was for a, a child to deliver her from hopelessness and lifelessness. And barren Israel desperately needed a child to deliver them from those same things. And in the fullness of time, God answers both of those prayers, first with Hannah through Samuel, and then for Israel and for us through Jesus. And so when we read this story about Hannah, we should understand that this is us. Like we are barren without God, without God's help and hope. But we're also deeply beloved. We're loved. And God can take wounds and lives and situations that are dead ends and really can do new amazing things. For God so loved this barren, spiritually lifeless world that he gave his one and only son. And the prophecy given to Isaiah for a spiritually barren world was that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And he's going to be called Wonderful and Counselor and Mighty God and Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on forevermore, and the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so if you sit in barrenness today, please know that your pain and prayers reach the heart of God. Know that He has not forgotten you. He has not abandoned you. Your hopelessness and your helplessness are real, but they actually aren't a barrier to His work in your life. Actually, they're often the soil out of which the greatest movements and miracles of God emerge. So let's learn to turn our barrenness over to God. Pray with me. 
God, everybody in this room is barren and empty in some dimension of their life. And there might be a spectrum of anxiety and frustration and desperation and hopelessness that we feel connected to those those places of barrenness. So we bring it before you. And we don't even necessarily have words to articulate ourselves. But we come before you because you are the only one who can take dead things and make them alive. So we're praying and asking you to bring new life where there's physical barrenness, where there's emotional barrenness, where there's relational barrenness, if there's spiritual barrenness, God. Would you do a work in us that speaks to your power and your grace? You're the only one who can, God. And while we wait in anticipation of that deliverance, give us faith and courage to continue to pursue you and to worship you. Teach us to walk by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.